I wanted to welcome everybody. My name is Dilla Barman with Triangle Vegetarian Society, and we're uh, here on September 12th, 2009, uh, having a discussion on ethics. We have six, uh, six uh, knowledgeable panelists with uh, a lot of interesting wisdom to share. I've given the panelists the challenge to think about what are the two or three most important ethical issues of our time, and what as individuals can or should we do about these issues. Okay. Very open-ended. And each one of these persons could easily uh, command our in interest for 45 minutes or an hour without a problem. But we're sitting at 8.43, and I'd like to get us out at a reasonable time, so I'm going to time box it, unfortunately. I'm going to give each uh, panelist five minutes, and I will time it, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and they'll, they'll stop after five minutes. And at that point, if there's any clarifying questions, Brian, what was that website? Tony, did you say X or did you say Y? We'll do that for at most one minute. This is not the time for philosophical questions. I mean, their, their comments will beg a lot of philosophical discussion, but not at this point. Once we've had a chance for everybody to go through, and I'll summarize what I've heard their responses to be, then we'll throw it open for about 10 minutes or so for general questions, okay? Um, and at that point, uh, and, and of course, you, you can leave anytime you'd like. I know it's late for some people, so you're not in the least bit rude if you, if you need to leave. But uh, after about 10 minutes goes by, I will formally conclude the program and, and thank the panelists. And then I would encourage people to stick around if you can. Uh, Tony had something come up, so he may have to sneak out a little bit early. But if you can stick around for a while, and, and people in the audience, then there can be some further discussion. So, uh, so with that, uh, again, the question is, um, what are the two or three most important ethical issues of our time? And what as individuals can or should we do about them? Um, so, and I've arranged the respondents so that first there's a member of the Vegetarian Society, then a member of the Ethical Humanist Society of the Triangle, and, and so forth. So they're we're interwoven. So with that, I'd like to ask Tony to Naden to, to start, please. Okay. Hi. Good evening, everybody. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I've been thinking about ethics today so much that the word ethics actually started losing its meaning and then actually my dog actually got sick and so if I could ask you please to keep Rose her name is Rose in your thoughts meanwhile so I might need to run so the, some of you know that I do teach critical thinking and really the question that I was struggling all day today was you know is that the egg or the chicken first? Which one is really which? Because everything that I came up with, they were kind of intertwined. So on the way, you know, I kept changing my answers, but I'm going to just randomly kind of pick three of them and give it to you. And one of the things that when I do teaching, that, you know, people ask me, so, so what, really? I mean, you know, it's not just about philosophy. I mean, you know, especially... We progressive people, oops, sorry. I kind of assume that we are all progressive here, but you know, we do a lot of philosophies, but the practice is really important. So what I'm gonna do is at the end, I will try to give you my practical perspective, and if you can apply it, great, you know, so step by step. So the first one I picked is really the biggest issue of our time as the consumerism, right? So we've been so brainwashed 
that all of our lives, or at least the last 20 years of our lives, we became totally a throwaway society, right? Or we were actually. Now we became a throwaway world, actually, right? You all know and feel that we are in an economic you know, downturn or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it is all because some of us quit throwing it away, actually, right? So the only way that at least for the time being to turn this economy around is keep buying, which means that, you know, there has to be something going away, right? So we have to keep throwing it away. So I wanted you to really think about this. I mean, you know, as you go on with your days and with your things that you do and, you know, how much we really throw away. And specifically, I'm going to focus on one thing. I really think that nowadays, which is the biggest crime of the last century or two, or I don't know for how long, and it is called plastic. Do you know how much plastic is around us? It's incredible. It is truly incredible. I mean, you know, it is, you know, some products now, even actually cars are like 50, 60, 70% made out of plastic, you know? So all the stuff actually we throw away, you know, as you know, sits in some you know, dumpster or in some landfill, and they don't go away. Even actually, let's not even kid ourselves, for the biodegradable stuff that some of us use proudly, you know, when we put that in the dumpster, you know what happens? Still it stays in the, in the landfill for hundreds of thousands of years. You know, because we have this wonderful technology and they compact this thing so precious, so much that it is not going to get a chance to meet the air, meet the bacteria which are going to eat it. And still, you know, there is really not much difference between the recycling people or non-recycling people or whatever, you know. So you get my drift. So... All right, so the second thing that, you know, I mentioned about critical thinking, you know, that's what I teach, and, you know, I think, you know, it's kind of a vague idea. So what is critical thinking, actually, really? So, you know, this is actually one of the biggest things we are lacking, not just in this society, but everywhere else as well. This is basically cause and effect, okay? Understanding what we do creates something else. As Wayne Dyer mentioned that a butterfly, a butterfly takes off at the coast of Japan, it becomes a breeze in San Francisco. Okay? So this is actually cause and effect. And you know, again, very much intertwined that the third one that I'm gonna mention is the lack of community. So we became so individualist that, you know, which has a lot of different dimensions, of course, but you know, from the uh, you know uh, by community, I don't just mean the you know community of you know Americans or the people from Raleigh or from certain church, but I'm talking about extended family, really. So the community, as in all our animal friends, 
and you know sisters, brothers, and so so these are the really the three things that I picked. Okay, we have so, to put, bring it to a close at that point. If I could actually just give give a quick example, you know, the, since we don't have too much time. So there are things that you know since I identified plastic as a problem, right? I try to avoid plastic as much as possible. I would like to give you the challenge for the next few days. Try to avoid plastic and see how much plastic there is. Obviously, you know, I have a glass bottle here, but the top is plastic, right? So I buy a can of food for my cats, and did you know that there is actually plastic paint inside? So it is not even free again of plastic. And we have to leave it at that. (laughs) So are there there any uh, quick... Uh, quick, very quick questions for Tony. Uh, and, and by the way, my quick summary: Tony has identified three uh, key issues: consumerism, overconsumption, uh, not understanding the impact we make on others, and, and a lack of community and community in the broadest sense of the word. And he started articulating that we should avoid using plastic, and and the other two imply the opposite: we should form community and we should Critical. understand Thank our impact. Thank you. If it's a quick clarifying question, should we keep buying and throwing away, or should we not? Oh, should we? No, of course, we shouldn't. Should not. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, so the system is, of course, rotten, right? I mean, you know, how are we going to change the system? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm taking a little bit longer than expected. Let's keep it at that, and we can pick this up again after everybody has a chance. All right, okay. Jan, we invite you to Jan Broughton next. Uh, I'm a uh, last-minute substitute here, so uh, at first I was leery of, of participating, but then I remembered a uh, program I heard on NPR this past week that had really uh, made a big impression on me. So uh, it re- it's, was talking about a book by Nicholas Kristof and his journalist wife, Cheryl Wu Dunn. And you may have heard this. Uh, their book is called Half the Sky, and it uh, refers to a Chinese saying that um, likens women to being half the sky. And they bring up the um, moral challenge of the treatment of women in the world. And that they liken it to slavery in the uh, last few centuries. The sex trafficking in Thailand. Uh, acid attacks on girls who are trying to go to school in Afghanistan, uh, bride burnings in India, um, displeasure over the, the uh, wife's behaviors, uh, and mass rape as a weapon of war in places like Darfur. And their thesis is that by focusing on the treatment of women, you fight global poverty and extremism. And one example was a woman in Pakistan whose husband was unemployed. They didn't have enough food to eat. They had to send away their first child to her relatives to raise. She was getting beaten daily because her husband didn't have anything better to do. They were way in debt, and she gave birth to a second daughter. Her mother-in-law demanded that he take a second wife because obviously she was not going to produce a son that would help them in later years. But the wife was able to sign up for microcredit 
$65 for beads and cloth. She created embroideries that she sold in the marketplace. They went very well. She used the money she got from them, more materials. Soon she was supporting the family. She was paying back the debt. She put her friends and her husband to work. She brought her daughter back to the family. She kept her daughters in school and has plans for college for them. All this from a small loan that she could use to bring income into the family. And it resulted her husband could not uh, be violent against her anymore because she was bringing in the income. Even her mother-in-law softened toward her. She saw that, you know, she had created a better life. And she, by employing other people in the neighborhood, etc., she, re she really became the tycoon of the village. But other things that happened to women in the world Things like in China, females don't receive the same medical attention as boys. And we also know that with the one-child family, there's a lot of selective abortions against women. The ratio of girls to boys in China is one, 100 to 107, which is statistically lopsided. In India, where the bride, there are bride burnings every one every two hours, the ratio is 100 to 108. They postulate there's that there's 600 to 100 million, 60 to 100 million missing females in the world because of that, um, the treatment and, and what happens. Um, this, in poor countries, maternal mortality is very high, uh, but with education and entrepreneurship, women can help fight global poverty. In Eastern Asia, countries that educate rural girls, increase the labor force, delay childbearing, and support local, they send money back to local communities. With microloans for women, they use the money that they earn to feed their families and to provide education, whereas men typically will spend their money on alcohol, tobacco, feasts, other things. The aid is most effective when it goes to education and health. And things that we can do are uh, help encourage scholarships and supporting girls around the world to stay in school, um, get involved in microcredit, things like Heifer International, which provide means for families and women to um, support their families and um, other and health support world health issues. Okay. Well, thank you. Just to summarize, Jan identified one issue that she thought was the key issue, and that's the treatment of women in the world, half of the people. Uh, and what we can do is we can work on education and things like microloans, which have proven very effective to women and scholarships. Is that a fair summary? Mm -hmm. Any quick clarifications? I have an addition. I was. That was going to be one of my topics. Uh-oh. Mine too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to approach it a little differently. I was going to say, and, you can when you, when and you I'm going to say now, that uh, all religions make it difficult for women. All. And especially at the uh, end of the 
spectrum the fundamentalist type. And that's where one of the big problems is for women. <laughs> let's uh, leave it at that for now, and let's introduce. I'm coming too that the uh, there's an organization called Women for Women International, where you can uh, fund uh, what they call a sister. And I have one in Darfur, and it costs like twenty-seven dollars a month. And you can correspond uh, with the Let's move on to Hugh. Hugh, you have five minutes. I'll give you one minute warning as well. So, Hugh Giblin. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I think that I'm, I have to read this because I want to get it all in. Uh, so, at the risk of spontaneity, I think most of us can agree that two fundamental ethical issues important to all of us are one, how we live in our environment, and how we respond to world hunger. And some of what I might say tonight may make some people here defensive, but basic requirements for an ethical life are a search for truth and to act on that truth. So the following is from a paper written by two National Science Foundation scientists. Worldwide agricultural activity, especially livestock production, accounts for about a fifth of total greenhouse gas emissions, thus contributing to climate change and its adverse health consequences, including the threat to food yields in many regions. Particular policy attention should be paid to the health risks posed by the rapidly worldwide growth in meat consumption, both by exacerbating climate change and by directly contributing to certain diseases. I think all of you have heard this before, and uh, you know I'm not going to. Uh, cloud this up with a lot of statistical uh, of support. My ethical sense tells me that vegetarianism is the ideal answer to this ethical issue. However, vegetarianism is a philosophy that many people find too discomforting in terms of their diet. I don't feel comfort should trump ethics, but recognizing the reality of the situation, I think a significant and hopefully growing reduction in meat consumption would be a ethical response to the climate and health issues raised by meat consumption. Uh, my other issue is more immediately dramatic, and that is world hunger. For years now, when I've been at a great meal like the one we've enjoyed tonight, my mind goes to pictures, and I know this is kind of graphic, of of African children with bloated bellies, bones sticking through their skin, tortured by flies, with vultures waiting patiently for them to die. It's a haunting image, and it's one that I can't forget. I think about the circumstances of birth that place them there and me here. So I'm certain none of us would ignore a child sitting in the corner of this room starving to death. Uh, we would race to give them a portion of, or all of our food. But why is it then that we can allow children a few thousand miles away to do the same thing? In the past hour while we ate here, a thousand children have died from starvation. Ten million a year from poverty-related causes, according to UNICEF. That's the terrible truth. So I wonder whether it was just my morbid nature with unrealistic expectations of human nature until I read philosopher Peter Singer's of Princeton University, his latest book, The Life You Can Save. He makes a powerful ethical case that we have no choice. 
that is simply unethical to let children die if we can afford to help them. It gives one example of how it costs us $250 for a product that can be mixed with water to prevent diarrhea in a child, which is a, a massive killer in poor countries. If each of us gave $200, we could raise $171 billion, enough to reduce poverty and hunger by half, reduce the mortality rate in children under five by two-thirds, and much more. Singer addresses the many rationalizations we make to avoid doing this in his book. I think $200 is something of an ethical gesture for many people. I think Fair Share International has got it right when they recommend giving 5% of your gross annual income to the poor, reducing your environmental harmful consumption by 10% a year, and take democratic political action 10 times a year. And here's an astonishing fact, I mean, one that I still find hard to believe, but there's, there is a credible study supporting it. The poor making under $20,000 a year if 4.6% of their income to the other poor. So why can't we do the same thing? So Singer's a realist. He's developed an income, uh, an income scale similar to the progressive graduated income tax wherein one gives a percentage which can be as low as 1% of their income to the poor. He has a website, petersinger.com, with all this information. So take a look. Uh, the ethical life you say might be your own. Okay, if I could summarize, Hugh has identified two issues. One is how we live in the environment. Uh, and towards that regard, the biggest impact is the food choices we make, so he urged the vegetarian diet. And the second issue is how we respond to world hunger, and to, uh, his response to that is that we should give to the poor, increase our consumption, and be politically involved. Is that a fair summary? Decrease our consumption. Decrease our consumption. I hope I said that. <laughs> uh, fair, fair, fair summary? Okay. So any uh, quick clarifying questions for, for Hugh? Yeah, So let me summarize the question and, and, and suggest how what portions may be best answered later. So the question is, is this meant to be international or domestic? And I think that's all we should answer now. But later on, we could pick up how do we know what's the legitimate use of our money and is volunteerism. So could you simply address the domestic versus? Yes, and I can give you specific information. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, domestic uh, giving is important. But I think the way Singer would view it, and I view it, is by the gravity of the situation. So while certainly uh, there are people disadvantaged in here and it should be helped, when it comes to life and death, which is usually uh, a foreign issue, then I think the answer should be that should be prioritized as the first ethical issue. Okay, let's leave it at that. Uh, let me introduce Frank Carey. Is that the right pronunciation? Okay. To be our, our fourth panelist. And again, I'll give you a one-minute warning. Okay. 
Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the lady who made the whoopee uh, pie. <laughs> as, as a um, sweets aficionado, I can tell you they are very, very good. And uh, the topic that I have, uh, I had two topics, but the, my main topic, I, I'm a retired physician, and I'm very, very interested in a national health system. And I want to say first that the definition of ethics is, one is, uh, how a moral outcome can be achieved. And my definition is to help the, your, the other people around you as much as you can. And it, I'm, you're going to hear, I know you've heard a zillion times the statistics, but uh, you're going to hear it again because this is how I'm going to build my uh, talk. We in America uh, use about 15% of our gross domestic product for our health insurance. As everybody knows, a certain million will say, I've heard 46, but we'll just say 43, just to make it easy, uh, are not covered. And I'm also going to say that next door to us in Canada, where I was educated, uh, everybody is covered. In fact, they're covered if you throw a few more bucks in besides what the tax is to have this coverage, you get covered for long-term care as well. And all the other developed countries and a lot of the undeveloped countries are covered too. And they're covered for a lot less than, uh, in fact, we spend more than anybody. The Canadians spend 10%. The British spend 7.5%. The Germans, 9 or 10 the French, something in that same. So I keep hearing that the difference doesn't matter, but I don't believe that's true. Somewhere that 5% is going and it isn't going where it should go. So I urge everybody here uh, to get to their congressperson and urge them to vote for the national health system and especially urge them to vote for a single-payer system funded by the government. Yeah, it can start out as something in for competition, but the Canadians learned that they had to cut the insurance companies off at the knees because uh, they are really sucking a lot of the money out of it. And the other thing, of course, that we have to do, we have to squeeze the pharmaceutical companies and get them to provide the government with, with uh, drugs at a reasonable price, not these horrendous prices that you've all heard about. And then the, the uh, third thing uh, that we need to do a, a bit on is the malpractice. In a lot of countries, if it's a bad outcome, they get, the people get paid. So, and then the doctors still have to be watched to make sure they don't have a lot of bad outcomes. And if they do, then they're going to have to not do what they do. So that's my, uh, my, my talk for tonight, and uh, I hope that you will take it to heart and, and talk to whoever you can to do this. And if anybody, I have a little time, so if anybody has questions uh, that you may have heard about, the, the, the myths that are out there, please ask them now, and I'll see if I can answer them. Hey, you have one minute extra, so we can take two minutes for questions. <laughs> There's any clarifying. If I could make a comment, and I was going to make this for myself, but you know, this is the perfect time. So, we seem to actually uh, treat the symptom 
rather than the problem. So that's an actually big philosophical thing between the Eastern and Western and more proactive versus reactive kind of thing. And you know, as much as I am for the you know the public healthcare option, I'm really concerned about this being played into the pharmaceutical company hands and all that kind of concerns. Um, I'm sorry, I don't follow that. What do you mean? So, you know, the, today, actually, we go, we go to that road, actually, most of us who has issues go to, say, a physician, basically, when we get sick. So, basically, there is an actual conflict of interest that, that you know, I mean, like, for instance, in China, yeah. one goes to the doctor to keep well, actually, yeah. and they find sure. the doctor, right. and they get sick. You see yes. what I mean? Yes, I do. Preventive medicine is what you're talking yeah, about, yeah, and that's, of course, what we should be practicing, and everybody... Not everybody, but a lot of people know this, and I think certainly if you had a national health system, you could enforce it as the other countries who have that national health system have done. And also the other myth, uh, while I'm thinking about the pharmaceutical companies, those wonderful friends of ours, uh, is that they won't have enough money to do research. Well, that isn't true because uh, all these other countries who uh, spend less on their health care, still the pharmaceutical companies of those countries do do research. Okay, let, let's uh, bring other questions at the end. Let me summarize. I believe Frank identified one key issue, and that is universal access to health care. Uh, if I put a word in your mouth, it's basically it's a right, not a privilege, I think he'd be arguing. And his, uh, his call to action is that we should have a, a single-payer um, health insurance system paid by the government. We should uh, get the pharmaceutical companies to make reasonable but not excessive profits and some malpractice reform. Is that a fair summary of your? Sure is. Okay. Very good. And with that, we'll introduce, uh, we'll introduce Brian Dolan to be our fifth panelist. Okay. Um, something that nobody generally thinks about, unless you're in North Carolina and you think about it quite a bit, it's uh, we're at the precipice of a disaster here. And I have a petition here. We already have three or 400 signatures. We need 10,000 to get in on a referendum for the 2010 election. So I'll pass it around, take a look at it, and please sign it. This petition will hopefully put an end to the most disastrous uh, issue we have today in North Carolina, and that is Dillip's jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. Stop! (laughs) Chalkboard, anybody? (laughs) Brian's a big fan of my jokes. (laughs) Seriously, though. um, Besides that, we have, as the comic says, a true lack of quality control by God or nature, whatever you perceive. And that's obviously evidenced by people like Rush Limbaugh and King George and Cheney and on and on and on we can go. So given that lack of quality control, it leads to certain issues in this world. And more so than if we liberals would... uh, uh, participate in these issues, which some of them we do. Now, the major problems, as I see them, are really symptoms of an underlying issue. The major problem, as evidenced by all scientific inquiry, is environmental disasters, period. That is the most crucial problem. We can solve every other problem we have, from, and all of them are serious problems, from the uh, way women are treated to the health care issue, etc., But if we don't solve the environmental problem, nothing will matter. (laughs) 
<laughs> we won't have a place to live. So that is the most crucial issue. Now, along with the environmental problem, all of these other issues lead to that environmental problem. Overconsumption, of course, overpopulation of humans, especially the ones who aren't passed through the quality control device. <laughs> now, all of these are really just symptoms of the underlying issue, and what I like to label it as personal responsibility and accountability. Now, you can change the name a little bit and just say morality, okay? But personal responsibility is really the key issue. Um, and we know that the only way to really solve a problem is get to the root of the problem. Now, this would take a long time to uplift the moral character of Bill O'Reilly, um, but we don't have to. There's an anthropological term called tipping point in which we only have to uplift the personal responsibility and accountability of a small percentage, and the rest of the people will follow, be primarily, <laughs> primarily because of a lack of critical thinking. You know, they just do whatever they're told, basically. So um, it's analogous to the health issue. Now, with the health care issue, even if we get single-payer universal care, it's not getting to the root of the problem still. With that, we're still getting allopathic medicine. We're still cutting and drugging, and we're not getting to the root problem. If we thought ahead of time, with a little foresight, with a little insight, we could prohibit these problems from occurring. Exercise, vegan diet, and using naturopathy, Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, etc. <laughs> all of these things can be used in order to avoid all of the healthcare problems you have later on. All of these chronic conditions are primarily caused because we don't have the foresight and diligence, perseverance to take care of ourselves. I'm guilty of it too, soy delicious. <clears throat> so anyway, um, <laughs> now analogously to this health issue, if we don't get to the root of the problem and make people accountable, then it's going to happen over and over and over again. Take this King George administration. <laughs> there is a litany of civil rights and constitutional abuses from rendition to torture to firing, wholesale firing of state attorneys general to uh, jailing people without representation or even a phone call, people disappearing for years at a time without their families knowing. All these litany of abuses... They do, they're just getting away with it. All they're talking about is the torture, and they're done, just going to prosecute the people on the lower rungs. They're not going to prosecute King George, so we have to get on the ball and make them do it. That's the only way government ever acts is if we make them do it. So we as liberals are the leaders, morally. We always have been. Every action in this world that has ever changed anything has started from progressive-minded people. So... What I do all the time is online, I sign petitions. Just one click on the email, it sends you to another web page. After you have your information filled in once, boom, do it again. You know, one more click, that's it. Another thing I do, environmentally speaking, it's very easy to carry your canvas bags in the car. Just leave them in your car. Go grocery shopping with this. No more plastic, okay? No more paper. Very easy, simple. Also, restaurants, take your to-go containers. I leave this in my car. It has my two cups, my two plates with silverware, napkins inside. 
It's very simple, and it doesn't sound like it's going to be much of a factor in this environmental catastrophe, but it does help. Everything helps okay. to some degree. And we need to bring it to a close there. Uh, so well, but the last thing is, if we don't make them accountable, King George and his administration, it's going to happen again. That's the only way people change is if you make them accountable. Close that door behind you, turn off the lights, etc. That kind of thinking we have to have with our politicians. So, so if I could summarize, Brian, uh, after uh, lauding my lovely jokes, uh, after that... Um, he identified uh, two major issues that we face. One is uh, an impending environmental disaster, and another one is uh, letting people get away with things, not having, uh, holding people to personal responsibility and accountability. And things we can do to address these issues are to look at the root causes. Don't try to solve problems uh, after they happen, but try to pr preclude their happening. Look at root causes, try to exercise, move towards a plant-based diet do petitions, and, and hold people accountable for their actions. Is that a summary of what you... Good. The okay. most important thing you can do, though, for the environment is, of course, be a vegan. It takes For the amount of land, water, and energy it takes to feed one person who eats meat, you can feed 16 to 20 pure vegetarians. Any quick one-minute summary follow-ups? And we can have... Yes. Will that petition be available after? <laughs> Will the petition... Oh, my jokes. <laughs> You'll have to ask John Davis that question. <laughs> okay. Uh, quick thought, you know, I uh, <laughs> certainly agree with you about the environment being the number one issue. Nothing else matters if we don't take care of the environment. We have to live on some planet, and we're poisoning our own. And you know, that thing you pointed out with the bag, put the bag in your car? Mm -hmm. I always have my bag in, in, in my glove compartment and one under my seat. Whenever I go in a store, I have one in Many, many times people say, oh, I got my bag, but I have it in my, uh, in, in my uh, truck. They're so damn lazy that, that they won't go in their truck to get it. It's ridiculous. People are so lazy and so wasteful. And, you know, I've been a part of that most of my life. But, you know, but if we don't start waking up and uh, taking, a, taking an interest in it, everything's going to fall in. Before I introduce our last speaker, just a quick 15-second segue from what Brian said. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy. A couple nights ago, I came to bed very late, four in the morning, and my wife was barely awake. Sangeeta, and I thought of a joke just when I came to bed. So I said, "Sangeeta, what animal never tells the truth?" And she said, "What?" She was half asleep. The lion. So with that, <laughs> with that, I'd like to introduce John. Pretty good for 4 a.m., huh? I'd like to introduce John uh, Holgren, uh, Holmgren, Holmgren to be our, our final, uh, and I'll give you a one-minute warning as well. Thanks. Um, this is my first time at uh, one of your potlucks. It was very enjoyable. Being the last speaker, of course, the disadvantage is that all the good ideas get discussed and taken. Um, but unfortunately, there are enough major eth ethical issues, so there's plenty left over. I had three things on my list. Uh, and actually, only one of them uh, got discussed. I had a, a, what I considered a world I issue, then one more specific to the U.S., and then a, what I consider a future one. The world issue was actually the one Jan talked about. And I'd just like to say a few more words about that. Um, the status of women in the world, women's rights, it is an extremely important issue. Um, if any of you happen to see the August 23rd issue of the New York 
Sunday New York Times. Uh, the New York Times magazine was dedicated uh, to this question, to, uh, to women in, uh, in the world in general. And um, the, uh, an excerpt was given in that uh, Sunday magazine from the book uh, Half the Sky uh, that um, Jan mentioned. Uh, and the quote uh, that led to that title is, is a Chinese one. Women hold up half the sky was the uh, saying that led to the title of the book. Um, but um, I think that is an extremely critical issue. And I agree with what Jan said, that if you start funneling mon- money properly, and getting uh, women around the world educated in ways they aren't now. They don't even have the opportunity to be now. Uh, That education, uh, with a little financial support, can make a huge difference to everybody, uh, men and women. So uh, since it's already been discussed, that's all I'm going to say about that. The second issue I had on my list uh, is specific to the U.S., and that is uh, corporate influence uh, in our government. And the... uh, pernicious tie between uh, corporate corporations, corporate behavior, and the behavior of our politicians, particularly, but not exclusively at the federal level. Um, I've always believed there's a crying need for major campaign reform. It, it's a case of two steps forward, one step back. If you've been following the recent... Uh, uh, cases that are coming before the Supreme Court, uh, there's a good possibility that some of the campaign uh, finance rules have been put in place will get removed uh, because of some issues uh, uh, that have arisen in a couple of recent Supreme Court cases. Uh, the other thing that's connected to this corporate influence is the uh, the power of lobbying in Washington and the the uh, enormous influence that uh, highly paid lobbyists have on our government. Um, so clearly that's another area that uh, needs reform. Uh, we need more restrictions on lobbying. And what can we do about it? Well, as citizens, uh, the usual things, but more of them, and that is uh, uh, stay in touch with your uh, politicians, with your representatives uh, in the federal government, uh, Hold them accountable and make it clear how important it is to start separating this corporate influence from from government behavior. So that's number two on my list. The third one is a little different than any of the issues that have been discussed tonight. Um, Because of advances in technology and in medicine together, Something's going to happen sooner than a lot of people think it is. What's going to happen is that for those who have the money, uh, your lifespan can, in not that many years, it'll be possible to extend your lifespan almost arbitrarily. Uh, I don't want to overstate that, but it will be possible to live a significantly longer and higher quality life. That sounds like a wonderful thing, and it probably is. But I consider it a a major ethical issue in the sense that once that becomes possible, certainly at first it will be an opportunity available only to those who can afford it. 
And once it is possible to essentially extend your lifespan, it is going to create some major issues worldwide between the haves and the have-nots in, in the sense that those who can extend their lives by that extension use more of the world's resources and um, uh, their lifetime footprint becomes bigger. Uh, now, what do we do about this? I don't know, and either does anybody else at this stage. In fact, it's not an issue that anybody's really starting to talk about yet. So I simply mention that as something worth talking about, worth beginning to talk about, and learn a little bit more about, uh, because in the future, and sooner rather than later, I would say within certainly the next 30 years, this will become one of the number one major issues in the world. Okay, if I could summarize, I believe John feels there's three major issues. One is the status of women, corporate influence on governance, uh, including lobbying, and uh, uh, an upcoming issue is the uh, possibility of buying life extension, which, ex which separates the haves from the have-nots. And what we can do about this is spend uh, money in a targeted fashion to help women in particular, perhaps through microloans, campaign finance reform, uh, restructuring and restricting what lobbyists can do. Is that a fair... Ten second summary. That's okay. fine. Yeah. Any quick, quick clarifications? Uh, two things. It looks like John's better. Uh, you try and get a lot of money so that you can uh, <laughs> extend. But the serious question I, I want to point out is: before you're going to be able to do that, I think you're going to be able to make your child smarter. I think that's going to come in a, uh, before that. That's that is a related issue, and I I, I agree with you. It's closely connected to the one I mentioned, but it's going to lead to some of the same uh, moral dilemmas uh, among our population. Let me uh, very quickly make some summary statements and then throw it open to some more broad questions. I uh, love this event, and it's, it's really a privilege to be able to, to moderate this panel. You guys all, as always, uh, pastors have really fabulous ideas, and I think we've all been, you know, sparked a lot of good ideas in all of us. One thing that I always uh, find remarkable is the commonality of, of themes. Every single one of the panelists talked about the treatment of others, this notion that just because we have something and others don't, we need to have some sympathies. For example, John uh, and Jan, and, and, and to some extent the others, spoke about women, empowering women. Tony talked about community, being in community. Hugh talked about children. John talked about uh, the haves and have-nots. Brian talked about animals. Uh, Frank talked about health care and, and, and how we uh, mend our bodies. A number of people talked about the environment, which is another way of treating not other people, but you know the planet. Hugh and Brian in particular talked about the environment. Um, governance, how we organize ourselves, how do we set things up so that we have a sense of equity and fairness, not just how you know, we can get all the toys and don't care about other people. John, Brian, and, and Frank all addressed governance issues. In terms of what we can do, um, again, I found a lot of commonality with what the six of you had to say. Uh, one is educate ourselves. It's important, it's incumbent on us to be aware of what the issues are, to be politically involved, to tune in, not drop out, but to tune in, to be politically involved, to be educated, educate others, um, to care for those who have less. Uh, everybody doesn't have, uh, doesn't have all of the gifts that, that any, you know, everybody doesn't have the same gifts that, that we might have. Um, Money turns out to be important, but in a targeted fashion. 
several people, Brian was very explicit, but a number of others talked about personal responsibility and accountability and, and also uh, grassroots democracy through petitioning. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's remarkable how we had such a wide range of issues, but I think that they all, there's a lot of commonality as well. So what I'd like to do, it's 9.30. I'd like to take about 10 minutes and uh, just see if we can get two or three broader questions. And uh, any one of these broad questions could take 15, 20 minutes. So I'll try to target the, you know, try to limit the answers. And then we can break and people can stick around as long as they'd like and, and have more discussions. So Sangeeta has one. I have a question. I have a comment about the women's condition. And that is that, that and I heard that there is a lot of women who are I'll repeat the question. You're welcome. It's not a question. So I heard a lot of uh, stress on education also, but it is also related to the issue of population. Because if you um, go to places like India or China, there's so much population and there's so much competition that um, there is not much motivation. I mean, there are so many graduates. It's unbelievable amount of graduates in India and China. And they don't see their that, uh, you know, they don't s- still don't see their future um, because of the competition. That's because of the population. So I think population control is one of the key issues. So Sangeeta raises this issue of population control, and I was wondering if both Jan, who talked a lot about women, as well as Brian, could take, take this question, Jan, from the perspective of women, women's empowerment, and, and Brian from the perspective of uh, equity and of um, population growth and consumption. The uh, only thing I can say in particular is that they find that when women become more educated and more able to support themselves, that they're, the rate of uh, when their childbearing years starts uh, increases, so that population does go down when there is more uh, education. And educated women is also more likely to adopt more birth control. Right, yes. The, certainly the uh, birth control is, is easier to uh, come, come uh, use. You know. So isn't that also the education of the man? I mean, you know, because that's the other half or the main half of the problem here, actually, isn't it? I mean, um, I, I guess I, I can't really speak to the dynamics of it. I, I'm just speaking to, to what they find... Uh, happens in the general pattern of, right. of uh, educating the women. Once more when that Indian government came up with this, you educate a man, you educate a person, educate a woman, you educate a family. So the comment was that when you educate a man, you educate a person, when you educate a woman, you educate a family or a community. Brian, so do you have men a, are useless. Brian, do you have a couple? Do you have any... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Brian, do you have... Do you have any uh, additional uh, responses to that? No, all I have to say on that is that overpopulation just leads to overconsumption even more. Um, and though they, in the third world nations, consume a lot less than we do, it's still a matter of numbers. You know, ten of them will consume maybe the same amount one of us does. You know, so it's just a matter of numbers. Okay. If you educate, if you educate the woman, uh, you don't have to worry about the man because the woman can take defensive measures, if you will. So whether or not the man wants to practice birth control, said like condoms, and says no, well, the woman uh, is able to uh, keep from getting pregnant on her own. 
Okay, Jody has a question. Um, about health care, um, what you said about single payer, I, I completely agree with you, but it doesn't seem like that's in any way a possibility right now. Well, so, I'm so jo jo Jody's question is uh, targeted towards Frank, and the question is, what about single payer? And she doesn't see that as feasible. So, do you abandon this, or do you look for compromise? Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah. Or how could we, in any way, affect that to happen? Uh, I think to, that we should not give that up, to, even though uh, uh, President Obama seems to be waffling a little. I think if he you gave up from the very beginning, he never waffled. He didn't. I think that it's if we Went. keep on uh, sending in the, the uh, calling the White House and saying, "Hey, listen," and hold his foot to the fire. In essence, and that's the best we can do. And if it falls back on a compromise, then hopefully, as Medicare, uh, you know, sort of keep on working at it. Uh, and if they have some other method besides having a national health system provided by the government. Some are method of keeping the insurance companies from uh, sucking the money out of it. That's okay, too, but I, I'm a little worried about that. I'd like Hugh to also make a few comments, because Hugh talked a lot about the haves and have-nots. So could you make a quick rejoinder, and then maybe we'll take another question? Well, on the, on the health care uh, issue, I, I agree with Jody that, and uh, Frank that uh, single payer is, uh, in my opinion, the, uh, the best uh, alternative. However, I also agree that uh, I'm not optimistic about it uh, developing into anything really real. What can develop, uh, which I think would be a, uh, a, a decent situation, at least um, at least until the time that the single payer can be implemented, is the public option. And the House leadership, Nancy Pelosi, is committed to bringing that up on the floor. So it's a good time to ring the bell of your representative to make sure. And David Price, incidentally, um, has not been bold enough to step forward for either single payer or the public <coughs> option. Uh, he's going along with this compromise reform. So I would knock at his door. Um, there's uh, Kucinich, um, the Ohio representative, Dennis Kucinich, has come up with a good idea, which he has introduced the bill on, and that is to... Um, give the states funding and the right uh, to implement a single-payer system. Now, Massachusetts has already done that. So if this fails at the federal level, the single-payer option, then the states can, can, can take the initiative to implement the single-payer option. So this, it's a good fallback position. It's probably the one that will occur. Before we take the next question, I wanted to throw a clarification. And one of the panelists, Brian, men uh, spoke uh, of uh, us as liberals or progressives. I just wanted to clarify, especially for those listening to this on the Internet, that it's not necessarily the case that everybody on the panel or in the room or listening is necessarily a, a liberal or a progressive. No, yes, some are. of us <laughs> may be, some of us might be proud conservatives or no, no. not, or not there the same where I am. one percent, so. maybe, <laughs> maybe. Let's, let's, take, let's take another question, yes.
we will be able in the future to buy a longer life? Essentially, yes. So, so the question is right for John. Now, it's like a comment. It's like right now we're doing that. That's the right. people who have the money go to the best dentist. They go to the best dermatologist. They go to the best... So we are in a way. Wait, it, it, we're but, seeing let, it. Let, let, me, let me just repeat it because people. Sure. So the question from the floor is that uh, John's issue about buying healthcare, buying longevity, exists today. That the rich can get better healthcare than the poor, and it's directed at John. And I'd like John to certainly take it. But I'd like Tony, who talked about issues of equity, to also answer this, if you would. So John, John, and Tony, could you take this question, please? Sure. Uh, Charmaine, I think you're absolutely right. Right. It it is going on today. It is true that that the wealthy have better access to better health care, certainly in this country, than than do the poor. Um, What I am speaking about is a dramatic uh, increase in lifespans among those who can afford it. In uh, going way beyond what we're able to do today. Um, there's a somewhat flaky writer, but actually he's a very bright guy, and, and, and he talks at length in his book about this. His name is Ray Kurzweil, mm-hmm. and uh, he wrote a book called, I believe the title is The Singularity is Near, laying out the technological reasons, primarily technological reasons, why this dramatic expansion of life expectancy will occur, and sooner rather than later. Uh, The fault with the book is he doesn't address the ethical issues at all. He simply takes it as a given that this is a good thing, and and isn't it wonderful that this is going to happen, and what are the technological implications? Uh, But if you think about it from a moral and ethical point of view, as we start... uh, developing the ability to have this kind of extension of lifespan, it will raise a large set of ethical issues that that are going to be very difficult to address. And we're seeing it on a smaller scale with today's health care debate. But it's going to become a dramatically bigger question in, again, I would say 20 to 30 years. Tony, do you have something to share in this regard? I think that's actually well said. So if I could add, you know, not to this comment, but in terms of practicality, you know, so what are we going to do? I mean, you know, these are all good conversations, healthcare and whatnot. But what I am really hearing is, or also my comment about consumerism, that environment is the, really the first key that we need to address. So we need to spend less, okay? Use less. And be careful. We, you know, get informed about what we buy and what we drink, what we eat. You know, the power that we use is tremendous. Some of the things that I do at home that, you know, I just turn on hot water heater once a day, you know, saves tons of coal burning out there, okay? Everything that we do extra, more than necessary, that we all do actually today, comparing to 20, 50 years ago, we are stealing from somebody else. So that somebody could be the next generation, or it could be our animal sisters and brothers, actually. Okay? We are actually stealing from somebody else when we turn on the air conditioner 
when it's 72 degrees, or when we turn on the, you know, the heat when it's 68 degrees. You see what I mean? You know, it is, these are all big, big, big ethical problems that frankly, it doesn't matter if you have healthcare in 10 years, you know, if we cannot solve these problems. You know, it is, you know, yeah, I am big in recycling, I recycle a lot myself, but you know, folks, let's not kid ourselves. You know, recycling is not the answer. It just makes the problem less, okay? But, you know, recycle, you can recycle once, the next time it goes to the dump again, all right? You cannot recycle something forever. You know, there is somewhere that, you know, those plastic bags, you can buy a ton of it for like $100. Recycling is like $5,000. One ton of plastic bags, all right? So as long as it's just so cheap to make all these things, I mean, it's just up to us. I mean, we need to make a role model our, you know, of ourselves for everybody else. Okay, we're at 9.43. We could possibly take one last question, and then, uh, and then, as I said, I invite people to stay after. Let's take one last question from Joy. I just wanted to follow the question I had earlier about going back to hunger and the yes. Might want to summarize it, but the, basically going back to volunteering, and also if you have any suggested suggested um, programs to knowing like where the money goes. And, and could you also tell the name of the book again? So the question is about how we can be sure that our money is properly targeted, and does volunteerism play a role? Uh, let me invite Hugh to take that, and then anybody else, one other person who would like to address it, and and then I'll then I'll bring it to, the to a close. So Hugh. I have your websites. Um, if anybody else wants to check the website, there's something called GiveWell.com, which, which does a, a very scrupulous rating of uh, nonprofits and uh, how they spend uh, the money you might give them. If you really want to dig into it, you can go and get their financial report uh, to the government. It's called Form 990 off a website called GuideStar. All this is free. Um, the name of the book is The Life You Can Save, and it's by Peter Singer. Um, and as far as volunteering, sure. I mean, if someone... Um, incidentally, Oxfam is, 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 is um, mentioned frequently in the book. I've given Oxfam, and uh, they have a website. They do a lot of good things, a lot of good things and uh, publish how much they spend in uh, administrative costs and salaries and how much they actually spend uh, on their mission. Um, or, I mean, volunteering for any of those organizations would be a very meaningful thing to have. Does any last person on the panel want to... Want to there is. What is that? Oxfam uh, dealing with uh, non-human animals selling them, just like Temple International. So I discourage you from yeah. supporting them. There's another group called VegFam, which is from the UK, who's been uh, uh, encouraging plant-based diets and, and not contributing uh, to the enslavement of other animals. So somebody in the audience actually uh, suggests Oxfam is not the best uh, charity because he has found in his own research that there's some exploitation of animals, but in, instead he proposes an organization called VegFam. Mm -hmm. and, okay, and Brian, you were going to say something. That was what I was going to say. Okay. Okay, so microfinance... Organization that is available online called Kiva. Yes.
I, for my birthday a few years ago, one of my good friends gave me a $25 gift certificate to Kiva. Kiva is, with my $25, I could choose any number of programs around the world. And I funded a farmer in Cambodia who lost their home due to a hurricane, and it's microcredit. And I get reports periodically of what's being done, and my money is almost paid off, and I'm ready to fund something else. I wanted to thank everybody, particularly the panelists. How about a round of applause for the six panelists? As well, as well as to everybody in the audience, and, and I apologize for being kind of uh, aggressive about stopping the minutes, and there are so many good questions, but, but now is the time. We're going to turn the recorder off in a moment. I bid everybody a good evening and uh, invite uh, those who can stay around for a little longer to, to please do and um, carry on some additional discussion. I won't be there to stop you. you can, we, one year there was a discussion that went on till. Uh, we left, but I heard they were here till I think, 1 a.m., so wow. you're welcome to do that. We'll lock the door, and you can stay as long as you want. So, so thank you. Let's have a round thank of you. applause for our moderator. Yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you.